Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, a Baptist perspective on history, culture, and theology. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyons. And today we're interviewing Kyle Howard. Hey, how you doing? Thank you for having me. All right, yeah, I was glad, I'm glad that we were able to... We talked on the phone a little bit, we interacted on Facebook, social media, but I'm, I'm glad... We, and actually, we met. We met at T4G, uh, the last one they had, I guess. You were, you were uh, definitely uh, peopled out at that point. <laughs> um, and, and you, we met. We went to like a, a Qdoba, and you just sat there and were like trying to be nice to me. <laughs> so, anyway, um, so you are a, um, a, you're in ministry. You would describe yourself as a trauma informed soul care provider. Yes. That's so, right. that's not really familiar to 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 me or to our audience. So, could you explain kind of those what those things mean. So, trauma informed. What does that mean? Yeah, so uh, one of the degrees that I did at Southern Seminary was in biblical counseling. Um, biblical counseling is, an, I guess, another term that you could use to uh, classify what, what I do in some sense. But uh, uh, biblical counseling more involves an actual, I guess you could say, movement. Uh, when you think about uh, uh, Jay Adams, uh, ACBC, Association for Certified Biblical Counselors, there's a certain kind of methodology and kind of movement that comes with that that I wouldn't uh, classify myself as being a part of. Um, and so I, I do minister the word. I, I do uh, counseling, uh, but I'm also very clear that what I do is provide uh, uh, soul care. I'm not a clinical therapist. I'm a, a soul care provider. And so I'm, I'm a trauma informed soul care provider. So I do a lot of work with uh, people who have been traumatized, uh, but I'm content staying in the lane of providing spiritual counsel um, and, and care and not entering into the realm of doing any kind of clinical uh, right. therapeutic uh, work. Okay. And you got a couple of seminary degrees, so you're finishing up a master's um, now. Live in Atlanta? Uh, yep. Um, doing a, finishing up an advanced MDiv in historical theology and uh, uh, with a uh, focus on the uh, North African patristics or church fathers. And uh, yeah, I um, uh, was in Louisville for many years doing my degrees at Southern Seminary, uh, yep. but now I'm back in Atlanta. So we were actually at Southern at the same time but had different circles of friends. <laughs> um, so we met after, after, but I think both of us were gone. Um, yeah. So you, um, and you live in Atlanta now with your wife and kids. Uh huh. Yep. And do you mind talking about your family? I don't know how, how. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, that's fine. Uh, I may, I married my high school sweetheart. Uh, we've been together going on 19 years this year, this year. Uh, but I'm married for uh, going on 14 years. Uh, we have a 11 year old daughter, uh, nine-year-old son, uh, five-year-old daughter, and we have a two-month-old uh, baby boy. So we've just been alternating, alternating boy, girl, boy, girl, uh, um, well, girl, boy, girl, boy. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and um, uh, again, we've been together for a while. Um, my wife's best friend um, and uh, wouldn't be in ministry without her and her mm -hmm. support. And uh, yeah, um, my wife is um, we're an interracial marriage. She's from Vietnam, was born in Vietnam, moved here when she was three. Uh, grew up in the Catholic Church, was converted in college. Um, I grew up more secularist, uh, secularism, and was converted in college as well. Okay. And your wife makes really amazing cakes. So if you're in the Atlanta area, look her up on what? Facebook, Instagram? Uh, she's on Instagram. Yeah. yeah. She makes custom cakes. <laughs> All right. Now, um, as people listen to you, they know she got an accent that's different from uh, probably most of our listeners. So where, where'd you, uh, where'd you grow up with that? So I spent a lot of time. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I was born in Georgia, uh, but, uh, most of my family lives in New York. I spent a lot of time up North in Bronx, New York. 
Um, and my mom is uh, from Jamaica and uh, and my dad just from D.C. And so uh, what you're hearing is kind of a, Jam- a Jamaican Bronx-ish mixed uh, <laughs> accent, uh, which is, okay. of course, always left me a little awkward in, in Georgia. Uh, <laughs> where yeah. yeah, it makes it even more difficult to, to a place, especially when my brother actually is uh, he's he's darker skinned than I am, and he didn't really do much traveling like I did. And so, though I spent a lot of time in New York, he's straight up Georgia boy. And so, when we're together and we talk, someone always assumes one of us must be adopted, uh, and uh, <laughs> and so it leads to uh, some good conversations. Right. So New York, all right. Well, if you don't know, now you know. Uh, okay, so what the big topic today is, so we just recorded an interview with with five uh, survivors of abuse in an independent Baptist church. And if you look across, you know, all the, all Baptist denominations, you're seeing a lot of well-known preachers uh, getting involved in abuse, cover up abuse. And the conclusion can be Baptist churches with their form of government and their, and their style of, of church policy contribute to abuse. Therefore, I'm going to leave the Baptist church. I'm going to go to a Anglican church or a non-denominational to avoid abuse. Well, our show is all about being a Baptist. So I want to have you on because you're a Baptist. You, you're theologically trained as a Baptist. You're also trained as a trauma care uh, counselor. So what's the connection, good or bad, between Baptist ecclesiology and abuse, because if being a Baptist contributes to abuse, we're not going to be Baptist anymore. <laughs> like, but we love being Baptist. <laughs> like that's you know my <laughs> degree. I, I got a degree in Baptist history. Uh, I, I'm writing a book right now on what is a Baptist. So I don't believe that that it does contribute. But I want to have someone on who's experienced in this, to, so we can talk about from your perspective, who's actually caring for people. How does a Baptist church uh, interact with with abuse? Yeah, so that that's a, that's a great question, interesting question. Uh, I think the title of your book kind of is kind of really the jump start for that. Uh, what is a Baptist? Because yeah. uh, uh, in in one sense, I would say yes, absolutely, uh, Baptist ecclesiology can contribute to abuse. But then in another sense, I would say it, 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 there are certain expressions of a Baptist ecclesiology that can also uh, serve to actually uh, protect against abuse. Um, likewise, if we were talking about Presbyterianism, um, I would say that there are certain expressions within certain Presbyterian uh, churches that actually um, ecclesiological expressions that can actually uh, contribute uh, to abuse. And there are some that may actually uh, serve to protect against abuse. And so um, I think the first thing we have to nail down is what does it mean to be Baptist? And then from there, uh, we can talk about the specific um denominations because again you can have you can have baptistic denominations that may have certain church governments that are actually more apt uh to have abuse uh than you can other ones and so 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 let me volley back to you uh, matthew and ask you but you since you're writing the book on it uh (laughs) when you say (laughs) uh what what is a baptist yeah so so my perspective you know you have what's called baptist distinctives and i think there's about eight of them But the core ones are congregational government. Uh, So the whole congregation rules the church. Uh, The elders don't rule. You can have elders, but they don't rule. They lead. Um, But the congregation has the final say. Uh, Obviously, baptism of believers. So people um, come to to faith in Christ and then are baptized into the church. Uh, So that would be the, the main ones. 
And then you have the lesser one or the, sort of the ones underneath of that, like religious liberty, um, priesthood of all believers. But I would say what, when we're talking about actual the, the life of the church, the congregation being being the final say, uh, that's going to be a big one. That That's where you see it come up the most. So the pastor is not in charge of the church. The congregation is. And then obviously biblical authority is going to be a big one um, because we don't come from a, a long tradition. Off the top ah, of you head. didn't know you were getting quizzed. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't know I was going to get quizzed. <laughs> yeah, I should, find, I should find a book on that. Um, that's why I haven't finished my book yet. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember what the points were. Now it's congregational government. That's the main one. Uh, so you we got congregational. Uh, we got uh, uh, credo Baptist. Or uh, yeah, that's yeah. So so uh, the 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 nature of the church is that everyone joins that church with full knowledge of what the church believes, what they teach, um, full participation, and and then the congregationalism is a part of that because they actually participate in the rule of that church. So I think those are the, the big ones, especially what we're talking about is the the actual participation of the members, and then there's no hierarchy. There's only two offices, uh, pastor and deacon, and they don't wield special authority over the congregation. So I, I would say that's those, those are the main ones. Okay, so let's let's take a let's do this. We'll, we'll we'll take a look at each one of those points that you've given, and I'll I'll, I'll kind of engage each one of those points in regards to the dynamics of spiritual abuse, how um they how they properly. Uh, administered could actually protect against spiritual abuse and how mm -hmm. if not properly administered, how they actually uh, perpetuate uh, spiritual abuse. And I'll, I'll preface this one by saying that I think that more often than not, um, these principles are actually used in unhealthy ways, mm -hmm. which actually do contribute uh, to spiritual abuse, but they don't have to. They yeah. could actually serve as uh, barriers uh, to those kinds of things. So first and foremost, uh, what, when, I, when I define spiritual abuse, what is spiritual abuse? Well, uh, when you think about a, a, the, a, the concept of spiritual abuse, it's not a one thing. It's more like an umbrella in which all other forms of all different kinds of abuses uh, uh, rest under. And when we think about spiritual abuse, what we're talking about, and, and there's different ways that people understand this. Sometimes one of the primary ways in which spiritual abuse is considered is in regards to Say uh, a church that uh, let's say let's think about Roman Catholicism and the kind of uh, you know things that it's known for in regards to abuse, uh, sexual abuse uh, that happens. We we'll say, well, that's a priest who's abusing children. That's spiritual abuse. Or we can talk about uh, even within recently the Southern Baptist Convention and the the recent scandal that they had again related to sexual abuse. Or we can say, well, that's sexual abuse being done by pastors. That's therefore it's spiritual abuse. Mm -hmm. But when we're thinking about spiritual abuse. What's important to understand is a couple of things. One is um, as Christians, uh, we are to recognize that we are not simply um, like the Gnostics believe, spirit beings. Uh, we are made up of both um, uh, the body and the soul. Uh, or if you want to get even more nuanced and get into like a trichotomy, mind, body, and soul. Uh, but we are both spirit and, and flesh beings. And with that being said, there is no aspect of that impacts the body that doesn't also impact the soul. And there's nothing that impacts the soul that doesn't also impact the body because they're, they're both intertwined. And so when we think about any kind of abuse, it's going to have spiritual ramifications. So there's going to be a spiritual uh, level of devastation as well as some form of uh, physical 
devastation. Likewise, if someone experienced spiritual abuse, there's going to be physical manifestations of that abuse, those things that we would call uh, psychological trauma. Or it could be even physical, uh, a physiological trauma, such as uh, gaining weight or hair loss or uh, heart disease or various other kinds of things caused by stress. And so, again, all of that is intertwined. And so when I talk about spiritual abuse, uh, I mean it in two different ways. We can talk about spiritual abuse as kind of the the overflow of any form of abuse uh, as it relates to the spiritual realm. So any kind of abuse that happens, spiritual abuse is the spiritual impact of said abuse. And then there's another kind of spiritual abuse. So there's a deeper or more, what I would say is more exhaustive or uh, more uh, specific kind of spiritual abuse that is talking about the kind of abuse that happens within a, a church context or within a ministry context. And the reason why uh, uh, spiritual abuse within a church or religious context um, in many ways is more pronounced or is more comprehensive in regards to its devastation is because within a religious space, the kind of spiritual abuse that is occurring is typically happening from someone who has been entrusted with spiritual authority and the spiritual care. So again, spiritual abuse within a ministry context or religious setting is abuse that has happened by someone who has been in who you've entrusted your soul to. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. It and does. so, so again, so someone who has been assaulted in some other uh, some other way. Let's say it's not by a pastor. It doesn't happen in a church. They're just generally assaulted. That that the trauma that comes from that is going to have an impact on your soul or your spirit. Does that make sense? So yeah. we can talk about the spiritual abuse, which is how does that abuse, uh, what does it look like in the ways in which it overflows into uh, your, your spiritual life? Does that make sense? And so as yeah. a soul care provider, the counseling that I would do would be in relation to that. How do, we, how, do I, how do I care for your soul, which has been impacted by whatever trauma, whatever thing that has happened to you? Now, again, transitioning over to spiritual abuse within the church, what we're talking about is how do we how do you heal and understand what has happened to you and like that the devastation that has occurred has happened largely most often by someone whom you've entrusted your soul to who has had spiritual authority over you. And so when we're talking about that and we're talking about, um, and so just to kind of lay the framework of spiritual abuse, that that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And when we're getting into church government, what we're talking about is how our church polity we're talking about in what ways does a uh, a church does church structure either enable uh, or um, protect against uh, uh, abuses that can have the potential of devastating a soul um, mm -hmm. in a profound way? And when it comes to say something like again, so when we talk, so we're talking about abuse of power and the impact of that. And when we're talking about uh, within Baptist life, one, so one of the things that I would say is that no, no denomination, no religious expression or theological expression is, is immune uh, from the realities of spiritual abuse. But spiritual abuse is often the result of a misappropriation of power. And when I, when I talk about the misappropriation of power, what I'm talking about is that Jesus is very clear that there is a specific kind of way in which Christians are to understand power. Uh, power is given to empower us to serve one another. And so someone who has some kind of power, that power is supposed to be used to empower the powerless, 
which is why Jesus talks about how he comes to advocate for the poor, to, to heal the sick, to give the blind sight, to he speaks on behalf of the people, even against the religious leaders and authorities figures of his day. Uh, he models this. Yeah. Um, and so the way in which Christians are supposed to understand power is power is something that is given to us so that we may use that to serve, to empower other people who lack power. Spiritual abuse often happens when people use their power, not in a, in a, in a, in a, a kingdom of God type fashion, which is the being empowered to serve, but rather in a self-glorification process. And so power is used for self-exaltation. Power is used in order to elevate self, to prop self up, to advance the self, and typically at the expense of other people. So again, when Jesus talks about power, he's trying to turn this on its head. The way the world uses power is to empower themselves and it's to advance themselves. The way that Christians use power, it's to advance others, to consider other people as more significant than ourselves, right? And so when we think about a church, uh, one of the things in which churches are structured is uh, because a church is an organization, it's more than that, of course. We would say the church is also a family. A church is also a community. We have all these different categories. But even within those other categories, there are power dynamics. Within a family, you have parents um, and you have children. There's a, there's a power differential there. Um, with, within a community, you have community organizers, you have community leaders, and then you have the community as those who they, whom they lead. Um, and when you have an organization, you have people who are in leadership, and then you have people who follow those who are in said leadership, typically speaking. And so when we think about a church, a church is a, is a structure of people where people are given different jobs and duties. And often these, these positions uh, include various elements of power, right? And so as you just mentioned, uh, when you come to a uh, Baptist church, at least historically speaking, uh, Baptist churches have been... Uh, have engaged the question of where does the power belong by answering that question differently than other groups. They've answered that question by saying it belongs with the congregation. And um, when, say, when Roman Catholics have answered that question, they've answered it by saying it belongs with the Pope. And ironically, both of those look at the same text to come to that conclusion, right? Yeah, yeah, who, do they say that, who do they say that I am? Uh, yeah. Well, that you, you, you know, you're the Christ. Well, Peter, upon this truth, you know, yeah. I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter is the Catholic Church is okay. So, all power and authority should be given to the seat of Peter, um, and by that, by extension, those who have been uh, who are under the lordship of the seat of Peter. So, you know, you're getting bishops and priests and everything else, and of course, the Pope on top. Well. Um, the Baptist looked at that text and says, hey, the keys that, that Jesus is giving to Peter um, isn't to this uh, some kind of apostolic seat, but rather Peter is representative of the church there. And what Jesus is saying is that he is giving the keys to the church and the church is there for those who are basically supposed to be the one who established the authority on earth. And so the congregation should be leading the church, not an actual individual person or leader. Right. Does that make sense? And so yeah. uh, it's so again, so often we look at the same text and come to different conclusions. Yeah. But even within Baptist life, uh, there are different conclusions in regards to what does that look in the practical? And so you have some Baptists who uh, believe in that churches should be elder ward. 
which essentially means that, hey, the, the congregation may nominate a person to be their pastor. And when they nominate and when this person is elected as that pastor, all authority and power and dominion is handed over to that pastor. And the congregation follows after that man or uh, maybe multiple men, but typically it's one man. Um, or you can have elder led. Uh, and in an elder-led church, the, the pastor doesn't rule. Uh, the congregation still technically has the authority and power, but they, in some sense, they put it on loan to that pastor. And so they they uh, subject themselves to the authority and the leadership of that pastor. And again, even within Baptist context, you can have someone who, you can have a church that has just one pastor, or you can have a plurality of elders or leaders so that you have the power dynamic that's kind of balanced out between multiple people rather than just sitting with one. And so even within the congregation, you can have different dynamics. And then, of course, you can have one where, no, the pastor is just a brother in the Lord. He's a brother who holds a specific office. But the congregation, full stop, is the one who makes all decisions down to the carpet color. And they're the ones that have all authority and all power and all dominion. And they simply hire a pastor to serve in leadership. And, and so you can have those different models, right? And, uh, and what I would say is this, is that even within those different structures, I think some of those are healthier than others. And we can talk about that in a second. Uh, but what I would say is that uh, even within the way in which that is structured, um, you already begin having some, you can already have some kind of issues. Because here's the thing. If that, that church structure is structured in a way where the pastor is given power and authority, or even the congregation has power and authority, how are we defining the power? Is the power used to serve? Is that is that a power that is granted to an, the office of pastor and an empowerment to empower others and to serve others, or is that an empowerment to lord it over, you know, other people? And I think what's very often and very common within uh, Baptist churches, regardless of denomination, is that power is wielded in these churches not to empower the powerless and to serve others, but is ultimately used to empower the person with that power. So that they can again uh, lord it over other people, and and, and yeah, as we go ahead. up there, because I think some people are going to say, and this is our tradition: these pastors aren't trying to gain anything for themselves. They're not trying to be better. They're simply trying to help people by telling them what to do. So they're well-meaning pastors. They're trying to help their people, uh, and they're using their authority to tell their people what to do and control them for their own good. So how, yeah, how absolutely. I well, uh, the, I the whole concept of doing something being well-meaning when doing something that causes harm is problematic. I, I guarantee you that a snake that eats a chicken's baby eggs is well-meaning in its in its as it devours those uh, those eggs. But from the perspective of that mother chick, it just lost its children. And right. so be, there's a lot of different ways in which you can be well-meaning. A wolf that devours a sheep is well-meaning. In, in devouring that sheep and bringing its remains to its children and feed it. But that sheep and that sheep's family ain't really vibing with <laughs> the, right. the fact that it's, its relative was just devoured. You feel, you feel me? So what yeah. I would say is that I, I actually, I absolutely agree with you. And I, and I do think that, uh, so I think that most people, uh, most pastors are well-meaning as they enter into the office. Most, I, I want to be clear here. I think that, yeah. The pastorate is a very attractive vocation for narcissists, and it's a very attractive uh, vocation for predators and abusers because it does come with a lot of spiritual power. And if you can, uh, if you can have control or break someone's spirit, you can have control over an individual. And so there are people, there are predatory individuals that pursue the pastorate for the purposes of oppression. 
But they're also, I think, generally speaking, pastors go into pastoral ministry, not for pay, not for notoriety, but they go into pastoral ministry because they love people and they want to serve the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But you can do that. But if you don't understand uh, dynamics of power, you don't even comprehend the power that you wield as a spiritual authority. And you navigate your space in a way where you don't you don't administer power in in the way in which God has called you to, uh, based upon kingdom ethics, then you can wield power in a way that destroys rather than builds up and uplifts. And so, what I would say is that the the whether or not the the, the well in, the well intention whether or not someone is well intentioned is irrelevant to whether or not they cause pain. Or whether or not they cause a, they trauma, whether or not they even un- unintentionally even abuse, the yeah. issue is more what is abuse, what does abuse look like, and well, how does abuse take place? And so, what I would tell is someone who's thinking that would be um, to pause on that thought and understand that um, what, what what I'm not doing is indicting anybody's intentions, but what right. I am saying is that intentions are not enough to uh, protect the sheep. Or even protect yourself from doing things that God hates rather than things that would make God rejoice. You want to do, you want to make sure that you're serving within a, in your role in a way that actually, uh, truly genuinely cares for the sheep. Uh, let me put it this way. When I was a kid, um, I remember I, I got, um, I, not even when I was a kid, but with my, with my kids, we recently got them a dog, right? And we gave them a puppy. And like with most kids, when they get an animal, they're super excited, right? And so they, they can be a little bit rough. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of, you, it doesn't take long, but you got to train your kids on how to pet their pet yeah. um, in order not to harm their pet. Well, pastors are called to be shepherds and to tend the sheep. And if they don't understand wh- how to tend the sheep in a way that doesn't harm the sheep while they're tending them, then mm-hmm. they could end up wounding a lot of sheep. And so what we're talking about is, how, is seeking to raise awareness about how to faithfully tend to the sheep in a way that doesn't hurt them in the process. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's good. And so when we think, so when it when it comes to the, again to the congregational point, um, I think a lot weighs on on uh, how a congregational church actually practices their congregationalism. Uh, in my opinion, I think that, uh, and I'm just going to be again just going to be frank here regarding my perspectives on these things. I do believe that elder ward churches can be toxic. And, and mm-hmm. often off. I don't think that that is a, a healthy or proper way to understand um, the the uh, how a pastor is or how a church is supposed to operate. When I, so I am a just to clarify that elder ruled would be um, denominations like Presbyterian, um, some Pentecostals, where the the pastors are making the decisions for the people. Yes, uh, but I would also I would also throw in Baptist churches. They are saying that though they may not theologically be right. Elder Ward, there's many uh, churches that operate where the pastors operate as being basically lords of the church. Yeah. And and so they in, in many ways, even even more than how, again, say someone like Presby's would do it in a way that actually is right. more. Um, uh, I don't want to say is more proper. You can have yeah. Baptists who actually are more elder ward than Presby's or more elder. Ward. Yeah. You can have Baptists. You can have a Baptist church that's more elder ward than uh, the Pope in the Vatican. I've, I I, you know what I'm I, talking about. You've seen I know them exactly churches. <laughs> I would say the danger for Baptist churches is not to become Presbyterian. It's become Anglican or Catholic mm-hmm. in their in their leadership model, where it's one guy at the top ruling. 
yeah. Presbyterians do better because they at least have four or five or however many guys at the top. But yeah, Baptist absolutely. And then they also right have a, yeah, absolutely. And so, I, so I, 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 so I think that elder elder ward is not a healthy model uh, mm-hmm. of church governance, in my opinion. Um, and um, and when I think about um, the elder led, which is again is church electing elders and those elders lead and the church kind of follows, I think that that's a better model. Uh, that can be a healthy model. But the problem with that is often the congregation ends up handing over their keys to that pastor. Yeah. And when that happens, that pastor begins to have full reign in regards to how he treats the sheep. So let me give you a prime example. Um, I think most abuse happens in elder led churches within the Baptist mm-hmm. ecclesiology, not elder ward, because in the elder in the elder ward church, uh, you have a guy who's basically sitting at the top and he's doing whatever he wants to do in an elder led church. When abuse happens, what ends up, typically ends up happening is w- that congregation, when they should be thinking, um, we have the keys. The authority of this church has been handed to us. We're the ones that are going to be accountable to God for how we care for ourselves as a body. Um, this brother who has uh, is, is being accused of abusing this sheep, we need to get to the bottom of this. And if we need to, we need to fire this brother and protect the sheep because we're, we have been given the keys to protect the sheep. Instead of that, what ends up happening is that they side with the pastor and saying, well, this pastor is the one who's leading us and this sheep isn't a leader. So therefore, we can just cast that one to the side. We're the 99. Let's go ahead and follow after this this leader. Yeah. And so the, the, when, when a, in an elder led model, um, the, it, if, if it becomes too elder led, the congregation can get, then, get, then give up its responsibility of actually being the authority in the church and give it and hand it over to that leader. And so that leader may not lord it over the church, but the church kind of lets the leader lord it over in a sense, if well, that makes yeah. sense. So we're, and, we're, yeah, we would be elder led. So I'm paying attention now because it, I think I, what I hear you saying is that the church becomes complicit and choosing they because they have the power to choose because they're not ruled. They choose to side with power. And cause far more damage than if it was just one guy at the top. Yes. And because then you have multiple voices. Because what ends up happening is you end up getting buddy systems. Yeah. Uh, where the elders basically could become. You have the camaraderie of eldership that happens naturally. Because these people are serving the Lord together. They're dealing with a lot, all the all the challenges that come with the pastor. And all those kinds of things. So they build kind of a brotherhood. Um, and as they have this brotherhood amongst themselves, if one person comes saying, hey, this person abused me in this kind of way or they dealt with this, they're going to be inclined to believe that that their peer uh, in, in authority and power over against that sheep. And, th- and th- now you can have a lot of things that come into play with here, even Matthew 18 that comes into play here where yeah. the congregation is held to Matthew 18 when elders are not um, or a text with, with, which talks about how will be ignored about rebuking an elder in public and it will talk yeah. about how you should be very careful about bringing a charge against an, an elder and how texts like that can use to muzzle the voices of sheep that are crying out. Uh, what, what I would submit is that um, even in a congregation, in a true congregational church that is elder-led, because elder-led, the elders recognize that they do not, that the leading that they have is not authoritarian the mm-hmm. leading that they have is a leading in service and a leading in self-denial and that they have been granted this uh, this this kind of authority uh, by those who actually truly have the authority, which is the congregation itself. And so if a, if, if a congregant comes to those elders 
and says, one of these elders has done this to me. What's really happening there is the boss is coming to an employee Mm -hmm. saying that, hey, one of these other employees did this to me. And those other employees have been entrusted to take it to the other bosses and say, hey, this is what happened in this church. One of the people whom you've hired, who you granted authority, may have misappropriated that authority. And that congregation is to make an assessment and, and that, that prioritizes the care of that sheep, not the, not, not the, the stability of that, the, that, um, that leadership dynamic that it's put into place. Does that make sense? And so yeah, that's, what, yeah, that's good. what often happens is a sheep comes and, you know, you know, though, you know, that Jesus was willing to leave the 99 for the one. Mm-hmm. A sheep comes saying I've been abused and everyone wants to keep the machine running. So they say, well, we can just go ahead and dismiss this one because we're the night because we're the 99 and the 99 are going to just trust these elders blindly. And what ends up happening is the buddy system says, oh, there's no way that this could ever happen. There's no way that so and so could ever do this. And then the next thing you know, um, you have someone who's maybe toxic in leadership who gets away with abuse because they have their buddies who think that they're being sincere, constantly covering, not realizing that, hey, I've been put in charge of the flock. And that means that my the leadership that I've been given is to protect the flock. That includes potentially protecting him from one of my peers. Yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? That's good. The power dynamic there in a true congregational government, the power dynamic starts with the people. Who then yeah. call their employees, which is what pastors are, to the carpet. And I think our listeners need to hear what you're saying is that when you see a toxic leader in our kind of churches, these independent Baptist churches specifically, you can't just get rid of the leader. You need to look at the people who enabled him. Look at the yeah. other staff members. Look at the elders. Who was protecting him? And what I've seen with our, we've had plenty of scandals in our, in our sort of movement. When when it's bad enough, the leader goes away and everyone's like, oh, the problem's fixed. But there's nobody else held accountable. Um, and what you're saying is he only managed to do that because he he gathered people to himself and yeah, they, so, they propped him up. Yeah. The thing, so the, the, the thing about abusers in general, especially when it comes to, to or any kind of abuser, really, it doesn't even have to be in the church, is abusers do – the reason why abusers get away with what they do is because they don't – it's not just about them. It's about the culture that they cultivate. Abusers hmm. cultivate cultic cultures that 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 where people look to them and see them as being blameless, and so and and, and they're great at flattery. They gate they're great at uh, uh, they're typically very people people oriented, and so yeah. people really love and admire them, not knowing what's going on behind the scenes. And when someone comes saying, "Hey, this is what happened to me," they're like, "There's no way that that so and so could ever have done that." Nobody really knows the leader like that. The leader just has put on, he's just created this cultic culture that surrounds him where he's the center of it. And so, as I mentioned before, uh, the pastorate is a very, very appealing place to narcissists. I mean, you get to stand on stage every week, get to talk and everybody has to listen to you. You can hoop and yell and and shout and condemn people and everyone has to listen to you. And if you, if you get the, if you get the mood right, they join you. And so you basically, it's your own little, a church can become your own little mob. And yeah. uh, and we've seen these in all these uh, uh these videos that come out about these toxic uh Baptist fundamentalist churches where you have these pastors that oh my god from the pulpit they're like they're like the most outlandish you know mm, stuff right. and it's and and people and they got the they they got a whole uh mob behind them you yeah. know in regards to you know to whoever they're hating on that Sunday yeah you know and so what what I think is so when we think about uh the, the congregational setting and, and this is another thing 
is uh, within a congregational framework, it's understood that the pastor or pastors are brothers of the mm-hmm. congregation, um, which means that they are on their peers, they're on equal footing with the other members of the congregation. There is, as you mentioned, there's not a hierarchy. That's mm-hmm. that's a Baptist distinctive that, that that we're all brothers. That's not a distinctive that say follows within a, say a Presbytery, uh, yeah. where the uh, the pastor is not even a member of the church. He's a member of the Presbytery, and the members of the church are separate. So there's a separate membership distinction between a past uh, a Presbyterian pastor and the congregation and the Presbytery. There's a, there's a disconnect there. Within within a Baptist church, the pastor is a brother who's been elected to a, a position of service which is a position to lead the church, you know, in its uh, Christological uh, pursuit, which is primarily leading the church and, and, and advocating for the marginalized, caring for the poor, um, you know, championing, uh, you know, grace, all those different kinds of things. And so I, I think within a healthy uh, Baptist context, you, within a healthy congregationalism, there is a very astute awareness that the congregation is the authority and whatever pastors have been elected, even if they've been elected to lead, um, they have been elected to lead as brothers within that church. And yeah. so they are members of that church. And like any other member of that church, they are accountable to one another. There's not a, there's not a, uh, an extra hierarchy of accountability where the pastors have their own kind of accountability thing going on. And then you have the peons who have their own kind of, account. no, they are, they are brothers. They have no extra authority. Um, and they have a vote. They have a, a position that has been given to them by the others to to lead in service. Um, and some of the, so some of these things actually play out, as you mentioned, uh, when you think about even the even the religious liberty dynamic. Uh, religious liberty we often think about as it relates to uh, chur- uh, church and state. Um, of course, as you, as you know, the history of the Baptists, we were, the Baptists were persecuted when they first arrived in the colonies. Um, ultimately, they were able to talk the government into establishing a barrier between church and state so there wouldn't be a state-sponsored church like the Presbyterian Church and to minimize persecution. And with the principle of religious liberty comes the principle of soul liberty, mm-hmm. uh, which basically says that you cannot coerce uh, someone into faith, but faith is something that is so sacred that um, it can't be coerced. It has to be uh, willfully embraced. Mm-hmm. Uh, another dynamic when it comes to how this can be uh, toxic is when you people go beyond what is written and begin in trying to enforce uh, certain ideas or principles or uh, preferences that they have onto other people and if those other people do not conform to their spiritual preferences, um, they are treated as outsiders. They are exiled, uh, you know, for this. That that's contrary to ba- the Baptist distinctive of religious liberty, which talks about not co- co- you know not uh, co- coercing people's faith. So this can, this can be anything from clothing to dress to the way people talk to the to the things that people do for leisure. It can be a host of different things where people are, uh, are instead of recognizing the freedom. Of, of, mm-hmm. of faith, people seek to go beyond what is written and assert things that are not law into people's lives. And when the people don't adhere to that, um, they're treated as apostate or treated as unbelievers. Um, and so that, that would be, so when religious liberty is practiced in a healthy way, then you have, uh, you have a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different expressions mm-hmm. of faith within even a, a, a body of a, ch- a church body. And you can have some vibrancy there and you can have some leniency there. But when you have that kind of strictness, that often does come, there's a suffocating factor that that can have, uh, which honestly is cultic. That's what cults yeah. do. 
codes seek to have everyone fit into a mode and bubble. It seeks to choke out diversity, even diversity of faith expression. Of course, we're not talking about uh, heretical doctrines or anything like that, or we're not talking about sin, uh, sin and people who are uh, living scandalous lives, but we're talking about things that are secondary, secondary about preferences, um, not about biblical law that people assert as law. Um, mm-hmm. And they do that. In a, and when people do that, what they are doing is they are trying to assert their own power and dominance over another person's faith um, yeah. and, and another person's soul. And when that's done, it is like you're, you're, you're suffocating a, a soul. Yeah. Yeah. And bad, I, it always grieves me when I hear people abused in a Baptist church. And, and I've heard them say that when they go, if they go look for a new church, it can't have Baptist. It can't be a Baptist church because of the abuse they suffered. And as a sort of Baptist historian, I, I understand why they say that. And I just see how far the Baptist church has gone from its roots, which was a place where people were allowed to be free as opposed to being born into something. And, and now it's become the opposite. And so it's really giving up on being a Baptist and becoming something else. And if we don't, if we don't speak to that, the Baptist name, and perhaps already has, will become associated with control when it was developed as a, as a path to freedom. And, and in my opinion, as a historian, you can see that right after the Revolutionary War, when political power was brought in, and you also see the split between the white Baptist and the black Baptist church, never to, never to meet again, <laughs> apparently. Um, and again, it goes back to controlling people, like you were saying. Yeah, and, and so I, th- I think that uh, when it comes to uh, even when I think about biblical authority, the way that biblical authority, when you think about what what is biblical authority? Well, b- the Bible can be wielded as a weapon, you know, or it can be a bomb to a soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens in spiritually abusive churches is that the Bible is often weaponized and, and biblical texts are, are wielded as a weapon against someone rather than uh, ministered um, to individuals. And so, again, when, when you're thinking about somebody who and not only that, but even prayer um, can be used, can be weaponized. And, 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 I, and I think all of us are familiar with these kind of weaponized prayers where, you know, it's you're praying with somebody and you, you're petty enough to be like, Lord, I pray that you would stop this or you'll heal this aspect of them or this, this, and the other. And the whole time you're basically trying to rebuke them. But, you, but what yeah. you're doing is so so it's the it's the equivalent of if if my one of my kids were were mad at one of the other kids or the one of my kids did something bad and and and, and what they would do is they they drag that so like my oldest is 11 and my youngest daughter is 5 if my oldest daughter was a, who was 11 was like you know what I, I don't like what this person did and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to drag them in front of daddy and I'm going to try to expose what they did not because I want them to change but because I want to shame them hmm. And so, yeah. but it's doing that, it's do, it's doing that again on the soul level where it's like, you know what, I'm going to take this person before the throne of their dad, the throne of the father and of lights and glory, and I'm going to publicly shame them in regards mm-hmm. to what, the, what they've done uh, before their father. And what that does is it distorts the father-child relationship between God and his people. And it also distorts the reality of what prayer is supposed to be about, which is about primarily about communion. And so you take something that is about sacred communion with the father and you weaponize it to be an assault weapon against the child of God uh, before their father. And what you do is you, you, you distort what prayer is supposed to be. And in that you can have devastating, uh, a devastating impact on someone's prayer life and their relationship and communion with their father. When you weaponize their, 
uh, the prayer like that. Same thing again with the Bible. The Bible is supposed to be the word of God. It's supposed to be, as people have said, a love letter, you mm -hmm. know, to God's covenant children. And when that love letter is taken and weaponized and used to slap them in the back of the head with or to tear them down or shame them and make them feel inferior, what you're doing is you're taking the gentle whisper of God, the love letter of God, and you're weaponizing it into a weapon that, that used to lash out at people. And that can have devastating impact on people's Bible reading and, de and devotional time because what is supposed to be a bomb to their soul has now become a blunt instrument, a weapon that's been used against them. Thank you for listening. Next week, we'll have the rest of the interview with Kyle Howard. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com or message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice.